Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 4, Episode 4. In the last episode, I summarized Leviticus chapters 22 through 27, adding only a couple of topics to the list of things to cover later. In that case, the Festival of Trumpets and Blasphemy. But those two matters will have to wait a week or two. Instead, in this episode, I'm covering suzerain vassal treaties and the bird known as the Cumarant, one of the lesser-known birds listed in Leviticus that the Israelites were prohibited from eating. And with that, let's get started. I've mentioned a couple of times in my covering of the book of Leviticus that the covenant between God and the Israelites was said to resemble agreements known as suzerain vassal treaties of that time and place. I'll get to such treaties of that era in just a second. But agreements such as these did not exist just then, but continue to this day, with the derivative even being employed in the U.S., with treaties between the federal government and the Native American tribes. I'll cover those in a bit, but for now, let's back up a few thousand years and work our way forwards. And remember, I said that the covenant resembled such treaties, not that it was exactly like it. Overall, relationships known as suzerainty are essentially any political relationship in which one region or state controls the foreign policy and relations of a tributary government, while allowing the tributary state to have a degree of internal autonomy, a degree that varies from one extreme to another. In the usual, modern sense, Suzerainty is different from true sovereignty in that, though the tributary state or person is technically independent and enjoys self-rule, but in practice this self-rule is very limited. These types of relationships have existed throughout much of history, but is very far from a modern sense of international relations. In this sense, we tend to think that nations are either independent or not, but by the end of this episode, you should be able to see where the line between the two is rather gray. Which gets me to treaties of that place and time that the Hebrews were wandering in the desert. Overall, in that period, such treaties between stronger and weaker nations were quite common. And we see this a bit in the history of the Old Testament, when the Assyrians and Babylonians wielded control over the various tribes of Israel, and even later when the Romans were in charge. As for these treaties, the typical would begin by identifying the nation in charge, the power known as the suzerain. And I'll pause on the word for a minute. The word suzerain is actually French, but with a Latin root, and it's closely related to the English word sovereign, which makes perfect sense. In the suzerain-vassal relationship, the suzerain the sovereign, is the power in charge. In the typical treaty, the sovereign would outline everything they had done up to that point to benefit the vassal. The purpose of this would show that the more powerful group was merciful in giving. Therefore, the vassal would obey the stipulations that are presented in the treaty. The document would present the relationship between the two parties as a personal relationship instead of a solely political one. Just as important was the vassal agreeing to future obedience for the benefits that he received in the past without deserving them, 
Next came what the sovereign expected from the vassal, typically in the form of tributes. But there were frequently other obligations, like providing slaves or wives for the male citizens of the sovereign power. When the Israelites apparently ruled over the Hittites, so around when Saul and David were kings, the Anatolian Hittites provided the Israelites with cedar, chariots, and horses. Now to be clear, it's unclear if the Israelites were the suzerain in the relationship, or if it was merely a trade-based foreign relationship. But according to 1 Chronicles chapter 11, Uriah the Hittite did serve under David, so likely more than just economics were in play. And some researchers have suggested that the agreement was in the other direction, with the Hittites as the sovereign and the United Kingdom of Israel as the vassal. It's really that unclear. Other typical aspects of such treaties were that it was read throughout the subordinate territory on a frequent basis. This was necessary for several reasons. First, nearly everyone was illiterate. So the only way they would know what was in the agreement would be if it were read to them. More importantly, the sovereign wanted to ensure the vassal never forgot who was running the show. This was also thought to help to increase the respect the inhabitants of the vassal state had for the king of the sovereign. There were also witnesses to the agreement between the leaders of the two powers. These witnesses were not only the people from both sides, but in some cases their respective deities. Typically, which seems a bit counterintuitive, at least at first, is that the agreement was said to have been witnessed specifically by the deities of the vassal state. Couple this with reading it aloud to the populace, and you can begin to see that having their deity as a witness would, at least in theory, strengthen their resolve to uphold their end of the bargain, and would lead to their own idol striking out against them should they fail to uphold it. Then something even more similar to the covenant. Not only would living by the treaty cause a blessing on both parties, but failure to uphold the bargain would lead to curses and destruction. We know most of this through various discovered Hittite agreements. Finally, to seal the deal, when the treaty was agreed to, both sides would share a mutual meal. In the ancient world, such arrangements weren't limited to the Middle East. In Asia, specifically in Imperial China, relationships like this were very common. In ancient China, the emperor was thought of as the center of the entire civilized world. In this role, that society thought that all rulers of the world derived their authority from the emperor. Do keep in mind that the degree of this authority ebbed and flowed from one dynasty to another. As such, at the time, diplomatic relations with the Chinese emperor were made on the theory of tributary states, but these tributaries often more resembled normal trade relations and not true vassal states. This was rationalized as the emperor bestowing his kindness as a reward to the tributary state, typically with gifts of equal or greater value. Whatever was necessary to maintain the appearance of his absolute power. And this wasn't just in ancient China, as the system, or at least the appearance of it, lasted through the 19th century AD until that society ran headfast into expanding Western civilizations. It was then that European powers arrived on the scene 
with their own theories of the relationships between sovereigns and vassals, all backed by superior firepower. Then, all of a sudden, things changed. Areas that had once been controlled by the Chinese, in a sort of suzerain-vassal arrangement, were turned on their heads. These areas once had internal autonomy, but were theoretically under the protection of China, especially with regards to their foreign affairs. By the 19th century, the relationships were insignificant, with China exerting little or no actual control. The newly arrived European powers rejected the concept and picked off these regions one by one. Japan also seized control, in their case taking both Korea and the Ryukyu Islands. France claimed Vietnam, and Great Britain seized parts of Burma. Such agreements led to the creation of such semi-autonomous territories as Hong Kong. It also opened up Chinese port cities like Canton and Shanghai. In and around these newly opened ports, permanent European establishments were built. But there was more. The agreements required China to permanently accept diplomats in their capital of Peking, and to allow the free movement of foreign ships in Chinese rivers. The newly arrived European powers were allowed to control Chinese tariffs and open the interior of the country to Christian missionaries. For almost 100 years, these controls put into place by the European sovereigns have been one of the largest complaints by the Chinese against the West. Finally, in East Asia, some regard China's control of Tibet as being a sort of modern suzerain-vassal relationship, even though most countries recognize Tibet as being nowhere near independent and simply a region within the country of China. A little further west on the Asian continent is India. About the same time European powers were establishing control in China, the British were doing the same in India. This started in the semi-autonomous state of Bengal and spread via annexation and strategic alliances to other regions, all along the way becoming subjects of the English crown, as well as dependents and protectorates to the point that they were no longer permitted to deal independently with other foreign powers. They also gave up control of their internal affairs. During this, the Brits would even replace internal rulers, usually known as princes, if they ruled in ways displeasing to the British crown. All of this led to the rise of the non-violent protests symbolized by the leadership of Gandhi, eventually leading to the independence of the Indian Kingdom. Ironically, India's independence led to its own suzerain vassal arrangement with the semi-independent territory of Sikkim. Eventually, meaning in 1975, Sikkim would be completely absorbed into India. Nearby, British control over what is today Pakistan followed a course similar to that of India, with regions being spun into that country, meaning Pakistan, as late as 1975. Other modern countries once treated as vassals included South Africa, parts of Croatia, Vietnam, which I briefly mentioned earlier, and part of Russia. During World War II, the Germans maintained Vichy France as a vassal state. New monarchies were created in Lithuania and the United Baltic Duchy, which was located in what is today Latvia and Estonia. In Lithuania, the German aristocrat Wilhelm Karl, the Duke of Urek, was appointed as the ruler. 
the United Baltic Duchy had Adolf Friedrich, the Duke of Mecklenburg-Schwerin, was in charge. The German view of the situation was well explained by their Colonel General Erich Ludendorff, who wrote, German prestige demands that we should hold a strong protecting hand, not only over German citizens, but over all Germans. Of course, they viewed these as not independent countries or people, but instead as part of the greater German whole, previously, temporarily, disunited from the motherland. Of course, moving along. Such relationships aren't limited to ancient history or Europe and Asia. Some compare the relationship between the U.S. federal government and the various states as that of a suzerain-vassal type arrangement. But that's not the only comparison in recent Western history. There's also the relationship in the U.S. between the federal government and the Native American tribes. The foundations for this can be found in the U.S. Constitution, where Article 1, Section 8 authorizes the federal government to regulate commerce between the states and the Native Americans. Throughout the history of the country, there have been many laws concerning the relationship between the various tribes and the federal government, laws that codified the removal of the tribes from their ancestral land to enforcing assimilation with other peoples, also laws that standardized crimes such as murder, assault, arson, and theft. Finally, there were regulations that placed the tribes in a gray area between that of an independent nation and a fully integrated people. As with nearly anything in the U.S., there are also federal court cases that both affirm and expand this power. These included decisions that affirmed that a victor in a war held a valid claim to the lands held by the defeated. They also ruled in 1831 that the relationship between the federal government and the Cherokee Nation was similar to that of a guardian and that of a dependent, and that the Cherokees were not similar to a foreign government. In another decision concerning the Cherokee Nation, the Supreme Court ruled that only the federal government, not the states, could regulate the Native American tribe. This was set in place by two different decisions, one in 1871 and the other in 1886. Essentially, this established the tribes as being semi-independent. The opinion established that the tribes were not bound to any government in the country, except the federal, not to any state, not to any municipality. And this binding with the federal government was based on various treaties and acts of Congress. And that's it for suzerain-vassal treaties and hopefully a bit enlightening on why some view the covenant between God and the Israelites as somewhat resembling these agreements. But that's not quite enough for a full episode, so I'll spend the remainder of the time on one of the birds the Israelites were specifically prohibited from eating, assuming the English translation of the original Hebrew is close. That's the kumarant, which you'll sometimes see called a shag. Now, there's not one specific bird known as a coumarin, but instead about 40 different birds, part of a broad family. All tend to be aquatic, feeding on the fish found in the waters below their flight paths. As far as birds go, they tend to be rather large, ranging from just under a pound to over 11 pounds, so a third of a kilogram to over 5 kilos. There was once a larger variety, the spectacled coumarin, weighing up to 14 pounds, over 6 kilos. 
Unfortunately, this bird is now believed to be extinct. The current living coumarins have wingspans up to 39 inches or a meter, which, given their size, is a rather small span. More on that in a second. As aquatic hunters, it shouldn't be surprising that they have webbed feet and a long, thin, hooked bill. The bill itself is relatively unique in the bird world, with additional bone and muscle structure giving it an impressive biting force. What is more surprising is that they are not only good flyers, but also dive underwater very well, being known to reach depths up to 150 feet, which is about 45 meters. Their shorter wings seem to be a compromise for this underwater swimming ability, at the cost of more economical flight. How they do this is a bit of an art, too. The birds tend to dive in from the surface, with many making a half jump as they dive. This is thought to give them a more streamlined entry into the water. Once underwater, most propel themselves with their feet, though some also get a diving boost from their wings. Once ashore, they are frequently seen holding their wings out in the sun. All coumarins have pre-gland secretions that are used to apparently keep the feathers waterproof. How this actually works is a bit of a scientific debate I'm not wading into. This wing-drying action is seen even in the flightless coumarin. But there is also a debate as to if the behavior is really for the drying of their wings or if it serves another purpose. A purpose like to aid in thermoregulation, digestion, or to balance the bird while standing on land. It may also be a sort of signaling mechanism or language to tell other birds of the presence of fish in the area. The largest study to date claims that it is indeed for the drying of their wings. But even with that published research, it is still a debated topic. The species live in colonies on shore, tending towards trees and cliff faces. They are found all over the world, with the small exception of a few central Pacific islands. Most of the species, which includes all in the northern hemisphere, have mostly dark feathers, but some southern hemisphere species are a mixture of both black and white, and a few, like some found in New Zealand, exhibit a variety of colors, at least on their bodies. Their heads are a different story, with many having several parts of colored skin, colors like bright blue, orange, red, or yellow. They tend to gain these colors during their mating season. All of these birds subsist on a diet of fish, small eels, and water snakes. Then for what is likely the most interesting thing about these birds, man has been using the birds as a captive species for fishing for millennia. Evidence of this has been found as far-flung as ancient Egypt, Peru, Korea, and India. It was perhaps the most widespread in ancient China and Japan. In fact, it may have been so widespread that it approached the size of a true commercial fishing enterprise. So, how do you use a bird to capture fish? What is likely the most common ancient technique is when a loop is tied near the base of the bird's throat, which allows the bird only to swallow small fish. When the bird captures and tries to swallow a large fish, the fish is caught in the bird's throat. The bird then returns to the fisherman's raft, and the fisherman removes the fish from the bird's throat. 
This fishing technique has even survived to this day, but more as a cultural tradition than an actual fishing practice, having been replaced by more efficient techniques. Other cultural traditions have the bird represented in many Western European heraldry and medieval art, usually in their wing-drying pose. This was used as a symbol of the Christian cross, and in some cases represents nobility and sacrifice. In John Milton's novel, Paradise Lost, the cumarant symbolizes greed. It was perched atop the tree of life, with Satan taking its form as he spied on Adam and Eve during his first intrusion into Eden. Finally, the cumarant served as the hood ornament for the now-defunct Packard automobile brand. And that's it for the cumarant, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll cover the other bird the Israelites couldn't eat, the hoopoe. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.